0: One of the common sources of conflict in human relationships is that two people can look at the same situation and see it quite differently. He says, you are making me look like an idiot. She says, but I was just trying to be helpful. The problem may be a difference in perception. Think of that simple image you've probably seen that can either be two faces in profile facing toward each other, or can be a vase defined by the space between them. Often, with simple visual illusions like that one, we're able to flick our vision back and forth between the two possibilities. Sometimes the problem isn't so much our perception as it is our point of view, the angle we are looking from. Think of a single digit in large font on a piece of paper. You know, the digit with an upright piece and a loop on one end. You see it and immediately identify it as a nine. But for the person sitting across the table from you, it's obviously a six. And of course, in situations more complex than a single digit on a piece of paper, we each bring a whole wealth of context and interpretation to our viewing. You may be in a public space and see a distraught child trying to pull his wrist out of the hand grasp of an adult. If you're a childless middle-aged woman as I have been, you may think, tsk, tisk, incompetent parenting. If you are the parent of a high needs child on the autism spectrum, you may think, thank goodness, I'm not the only one. And if your past experience has made you distrusting and ready to fear the worst, you may perceive it as a child abduction. Finally, beyond those kinds of factors, our perceptivity can be trained. I think about the judges in figure skating competitions. They don't get any replays. They have to see it all in real time. But they comment on things like, When he landed that triple axle, the fingers of his left hand weren't aligned. Really? How can they see that level of detail when it's all happening in a matter of seconds? They probably have better visual agility than I do to start with, but they have also trained themselves by watching their sport over and over again. That kind of trained observation is really important in clinical medicine an experienced physician can make a diagnosis of a heart attack with reasonable certainty in under two minutes. Part of that is, of course, knowledge base and reasoning, but part of it is observation. At their very first glance, they would have noticed the nicotine-stained fingers and the gadget on the arm to measure blood sugar, and they would already know that the patient has two major risk factors for a heart attack. It might take a novice medical student 15 minutes of questions before they got those two bits of information. Today we're going to look at someone who had become a skilled spectator, an astute eyewitness, not of figure skaters or of patients with chest pain, but a careful observer of Jesus. We're going to look at Mary Magdalene. I want to start with with a story that Aaron spoke about back at Easter. It's the story of three different people going to the grave that morning and seeing three different things. Here's how John records the story in his biography of Jesus. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, gasping for breath. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed No one yet knew from the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there, dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After she said this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, sir, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. Jesus said, Mary. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher. That morning at the tomb, Peter saw some piles of cloth and didn't know what to believe. The other man, who is thought to have been John, saw the empty tomb and believed, but Mary saw the risen Jesus. They were all in the same place on the morning of the resurrection, but Mary... Saw more. I recently listened to a podcast with the tagline, Everything You Think You Know About Mary Magdalene is wrong. The guest was Elizabeth Schrader Polzer, a scholar who does textual analysis of the earliest available Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Interestingly, her first career was as an award-winning singer-songwriter. She wrote and recorded a song called Magdalene, and the writing of that song, among other things, prompted her transition from musician to theologian. Her research, perhaps not surprisingly, focuses on Mary Magdalene. She said most people, if you ask them about Mary, would come up with two facts, that she had been a prostitute and that she was from the town of Magdala. Dr. Polster would say they were wrong and wrong. There is no evidence that Mary was ever a prostitute. That notion came up in a sermon that Pope Gregory gave in the late 6th century, where he appears to conflate the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet at a Pharisee's house near Nain with Mary Magdalene and with Mary of Bethany. I don't mean to cast any shade on him. He was a busy man. Sermon prep time can get squeezed, and there are lots of Marys in the Gospels. But I do wonder if it was part of a general trend that in some setting continues to the present day of undervaluing or even discrediting the witness of women. She is also unlikely to have been from Magdala, Dr. Schrader-Polzer does careful analysis of the original texts, and the phrase that is translated Magdalene suggests that it is a nickname. Magdal means tower, and Magdalene would be the feminine version of that. So we have Simon, who is called Peter, meaning the rock, and Mary, who is called Magdalene, meaning the tower. Peter, the rock, and Mary, the tower you can see why that also might be threatening to men who wanted to keep women in their place. So what do we know about Mary? As I was preparing this message, I was surprised at how little there is about her in the Bible. She is referenced in all the Gospels as being at the crucifixion and the resurrection. But apart from that, there is only one specific mention in Luke's account. He describes the group of people traveling with Jesus and says, there were also some women in their company who had been healed of various evil afflictions and illnesses. Mary, the one called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, wife of Chusa, Herod's manager, and Susanna, along with many others who used their considerable means to provide for the company. Mary's connection with Jesus apparently began with a healing, and I think that's not uncommon. When we turn to God, it's not because we've been presented with some compelling academic argument. It's not because someone put together a string of facts for us that just made it logical to join the Jesus camp. No, it's usually because we have an unmet need a longing for something different, something more. And when Mary came to Jesus, tormented by demons, he healed her. We are told that she was healed from seven demons. It's hard to know what that actually meant. Demon possession is not a commonly identified phenomenon these days. They probably haven't had a recorded case at PRHC all year. It is possible that in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, the demonic forces were more active than now, simply in response to his presence. But many of the afflictions noted in the Bible seem to describe conditions for which we now have medical explanations. Epilepsy, congestive heart failure, cerebrovascular accident, schizophrenia... And of course the other difference with healing stories in the Bible is the cure seems to be instantaneous, yet that is seldom our experience nowadays. A successful surgical procedure can give a good result promptly, but our deeper afflictions not so much. For the deep wounds that life has dished out to our hearts and minds, healing seems to be a lifelong journey. We may wish the instantaneous healings that they were still an option, but for most of us, that's not our experience. And if we read our Bibles carefully, there are stories where healing is more protracted and involves effort by the person being healed and by the community. Think of the Old Testament story of Naaman, the powerful Syrian general who is struck with leprosy. He gets word that the God of Israel has power to heal, so he goes to the king bearing lavish gifts of silver and gold. But instead of receiving royal treatment, he's shipped off to see an eccentric prophet, Elisha. And worst yet, worse yet, the prophet doesn't even come out to see him. He simply sends out a messenger with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. He eventually gets over himself, does as he was told, and is healed. But it's clear he would have preferred a magic wand option. He'd have sympathy with a lot of us moderns who would prefer a pill that would fix things, rather than having to do our work of healing. Then there is the story of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus heals him, resuscitates him with a single shout into the tomb. But when Lazarus comes out of the grave, he still can't really move. The community is told to remove the grave wrappings, to free him from the trappings of death that are hobbling him a story that gives a beautiful picture of the role of community in our healing. Mary Magdalene's journey with Jesus began with a healing. And I think that healing was one of the things that enabled her to see more. Being delivered from her demons and the stigma attached to them left her with a deep well of gratitude and loyalty that kept her close to Jesus. But also, on the other side of healing, her perspective, her capacity to see, was better, clearer, more insightful. Mary also saw more because she spent so much time with Jesus. I already read you the clip from Luke's biography where it talked about the women who were part of Jesus' entourage. It was clear they traveled together with Jesus' closest followers, heard his teaching, saw the miracles, and probably got to hear Jesus' behind-the-scenes explanations of his parables and his plans. And Mary and the other women also served Jesus. Some of you will be familiar with the church office of deacon. That is the term Matthew uses when he describes the role of the women who were followers of Jesus. They paid the bills, but they also met practical needs, Mary would have known and seen Jesus' hunger, his blistered feet, and his weariness. Jesus valued that service, and he taught that when we offer that kind of practical help to the weary and the wounded, the prisoner and the destitute, that he will be present in them. Mary saw more of Jesus because of her practical service to him, and we can too. And Mary stayed with Jesus to the very end. When the men all deserted Jesus on the day of His crucifixion, Mary was there at the cross until the end, through all of that agony, there until His last breath. She was there when the body was taken down from the cross and moved to a tomb. While Peter, James, and John, and the others were hiding behind locked doors, She sat openly in front of the tomb, weeping and grieving on that Friday afternoon. On Easter Sunday, she was back at the tomb even before the sun was up. These were risky acts, acts of great love and loyalty, but they were also acts of faith. Mary knew that Jesus was the Messiah who would bring a new kingdom, and since she hadn't seen that yet, she knew the story wasn't over. And so Mary is the first to see the risen Jesus. She not only sees him, he commissions her to bring the good news to all the others, to tell them what she has seen. Because of that, she is venerated in many churches as the apostle to the apostles, and equal of the remaining 11. Mary's story is one of faith and faithfulness, of love and loyalty, of healing and helping, of watching and waiting, a story of learning to see. It's a story of inauspicious beginnings. She was the ultimate unlikely hero, a woman, apparently single, possessed by demons, and therefore an outcast. And it's a story with an ending that's almost unbelievably good. Mary Magdalene, Mary the Tower, Mary the Apostle to the Apostles, Saint Mary, Mary the one who saw more.